Hi, Dunder Browners. I don't know, does that work? Browners? Hmm. I'll keep trying. But hello, everyone. Welcome back to Down to Brown. Today, we have a really lengthy episode, so I'm going to make this short, um, but it's a very important topic about mental health. And honestly, like I even struggled to come up with a title because we just had such a fascinating conversation about almost any possible intersection with the South Asian identity and mental health, though I'm sure we still missed some. So um, if there's something else that you wanted to hear about, please holler. Today, I talked to Nerali DaCosta, who is a psychotherapist and marriage family therapist as well. So MFT, um, that's what the initial stands for. That's next to her title. And she is a wealth of knowledge. A lot of what she says is very much relevant to anyone who is thinking about mental health and trying to dissect, especially if you're uh, balancing multiple identities. But if you are South Asian, you might find some truth to some of the things that come up for from the context of our cultural nuances um, and some of the dynamics that we've grown up with. She also holds many identities, which we'll talk about. She Her family is going... So Goa is a state in India, and it's really unique with its history in that it used to be a Portuguese colony. Not many people know that because the British colonization is usually, it was it was the most vast, so it gets the most attention. Um, she is also Catholic, queer, and a fantastic woman. Um, and so she has incredible advice and insight into this. Um, the one thing we did want to call out, though, is that we know that a lot of folks are struggling right now to reconcile the fact that the COVID crisis in India is getting out of control. Many of us have friends, family, or just generally care about what's happening. And so our heart goes out to you. Um, we know that there's a lot of support needed. So we will be likely to also release something together to talk about how to take care of yourself during this time. Um, also, the last thing I wanted to mention is that in this conversation, because when it comes to therapy, you can't really share specific examples, but stories is really a big part of down to round. I don't like to keep it hypothetical. I love to share specifics. Since we can't do that, I used myself as a example and guinea pig. Um, if you ever get annoyed with my stories, feel free to fast forward because Nirali is really the goat here. But um, if you if it's helpful, I provided some of my own stories and examples to see if it is um, impactful to hear how this plays out sometimes in real life. That being said, let's kick it over to Nirali. Hi, Nirali. Thank you so much for joining me at Down to Brown. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. I know it was sort of a cold outreach because of a friend of a friend who recommended talking to you. And so I especially appreciate you being open to this connection. Um, I'm so excited to talk to someone who knows way more about the space of psychology than someone like me, um, who can just quote some of my majors, textbooks, and classes. Um, so you are an MFT, correct? Yes. So can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Yes. Um, so uh, MFT stands for Marriage and Family Therapist. And the language can be a little confusing because this um, this license includes individual as well as couples, as well as family, as well as child therapy. So there's really a lot of things that you can do with it. But basically, it's a master's level um, 
psychology degree that prepares you to practice psychotherapy. Mm. Oh my God. That's so that's like all of the relationships. Um, yes. And <laughs> I really appreciate that because I think part of the reason why this seemed like such a great fit. It was, you know, in Down to Brown, we talk a lot about how our upbringings informed us. And especially with our South Asian upbringings, you know, a classic point of conversation is how we're resolving some of our collectivist ways of socializing from our context and heritage to then like the American assimilation aspect of a more individuated um society or individualistic and then how do we individuate there in return so the fact that you have this um, background and just how relationships connect as well I think would be so helpful for us to understand ourselves even in context of our own families friends partners etc I think that's really great framing um, that tension between the collectivist and the individualist cultures and the way that that shows up um, in our friendships with other communities within the U.S. and the way that that comes into conflict with our family of origin. Absolutely. So speaking of, where in the South Asian experience do you identify with? Um, well, my family is from a part of India that was colonized by the Portuguese. And so um, my family is actually a mi- part from a minority community in India. Um, as Catholics from Goa. And so that really um, brought in a, a Western influence into my parents' lives growing up. Mm-hmm. Where, so even though um, they had that Portuguese cultural influence, um, it sort of primed them for then the British culture coming in. And so my parents actually grew up like listening to Western music and, um, you know, speaking English often in the home, mm. even though they also spoke Hindi and Konkani and Portuguese. Um, there was, Whoa. yeah. <laughs> um, and German because my parents, the first place that they immigrated to outside of India was Germany, um, where my dad got a job working with, the U.S. military hospital. Wow. I thought you were going to say U.N. based on all the languages they learned. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been cool. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, And so my older sister was actually born in Germany. And we called our grandparents Oma and Opa because um, my sister was the first grandchild. And so she um, had a few German words in her vocabulary. And so she called our grandparents Oma and Opa. And so um, there is a little bit of British influence, a little bit of German influence, a little bit of Portuguese influence, and of course, Indian, um, South Indian um, cultural influence. And so, you know, in terms of what that has meant um, of our experience here in the U.S. is that um, you know, in some way, you know, my parents talk about feeling um, at home here pretty quickly mm. and, and feeling like um, I think they had maybe less of a struggle with acculturation than um, other South Asian immigrants do. At the same time, they didn't necessarily um, fit in with the South Asian community that was established here. And so, of course, there were some, you know, go in community functions and things like that. 
Um, but there, I think there wasn't as much of a sense of a broad South Asian community that we could kind of easily connect with um, here in, in the U.S. Mm. and particularly in Southern California. That is such a fascinating juxtaposition, especially when we talk about multiple identities and how to balance it. This is a minority group within the broader Indian subcontinent culture and South Asian culture. And so even being in a place that was both under Portuguese rule, many people don't know often that maybe if they know the British colonized India, they might not be as familiar with the fact that the Portuguese and French also colonized at some point. And so those create another sub subculture. So that is truly, truly a lot to be able to put together and process, but that's what makes you so uniquely you, Norelli. And I'd love to ask you too, so how did that then translate into your desire to get into psychology? Well, interestingly, you know, even though um, both of my parents grew up Catholic, were raised by um, Catholic, you know, devout Catholic families, um, my dad's side of the family also really had an integrated practice of yoga and meditation, um, mantra, like they, they, they really kind of have a syncretic, um, you know, spirituality that it includes some of, um, you know, what might be more traditionally associated with, um, you know, Eastern spirituality, South Asian, like, I, I don't want to say Hinduism, but the traditions um, from that part of the world. And so um, for me, yoga and meditation were um, always a part of my life. It was something that um, was just, you know, available and accessible in my household or in my father's household, because my parents actually split when I was very young. And so in my father's household, um, that was very much a part of the kind of family culture. And mm. um, so as I was growing up, um, yoga and meditation were kind of um, a space where I got comfortable um, being present with myself and working through things and resourcing myself. And then when I completed high school, my very first professional training was as a body worker. So I went to massage school oh. um, because I was always drawn to the healing arts. And so um, in my work with massage therapy clients, I found often that people were having experiences on the table um, of emotional release, of um, processing traumatic memories. And I recognized that um, I needed to have more tools in order to be able to fully support the process mm. that I was opening up in them through the body work. Yeah. And so that is really what um, made me become interested in somatic psychology, which is the specific area of psychology that I went on to study 
and I gave that background about yoga and meditation because my own very much so much of my own healing and my own way of processing um, was in that space of the integration between mind, body, and spirit. Wow, that's incredible. And I love that you gravitated towards the one thing, it led you to another, and slowly you built on those. I'm imagining you're like letting someone leave like after the massage therapy and you're like, wait, like there's so much unfinished, like I can still help you. Um, so I, I think it's amazing that you went into the space to continue that work. I have to ask, um, this is something I've wondered about like massage therapy. Does it hurt your hands at any point? After a while? Yes, it does. So I did that work for about 10 years before, um, my body just couldn't do it anymore. It just, um, you know, started to kind of create tendonitis in my wrists. And um, it was unfortunate because I really actually enjoyed that work, but um, yeah. my body had reached its limit. And um, that was also part of kind of the natural, you know, evolution for me to, to move on to, to be able to work with the body, mind, and emotions um, mm -hmm. through another vehicle that didn't require me to use my physical body. Absolutely. I have always wondered because it seems like such physically taxing work. And also, I imagine you're also like sort of absorbing that energy too from the person you're working with. Um, so it's always seemed to me something like I've always admired it because it's always seemed very emotionally laborious or physically laborious too. It's so true. Exactly. You do, um, you know, take on what you're interacting with. And that's true for psychotherapy also. And so there are ways, um, you know, that as a body worker, I took care of my body and approached the work. And, um, and then there's ways as a therapist that I also, yeah. um, you know, need to balance that service I'm providing to others, that space that I'm holding mm -hmm. um, with my own self-care. I'd love to talk more about that. And before I do, I wanted to take a step back and just acknowledge the time that we're releasing this episode and we're um, is Mental Health Awareness Month, which is all of May. Um, and it's also uh, Asian Pacific Islander Awareness Month and so or Heritage Month. And so there's a lot that of intersection of why you and I are here today talking about this. And so I wanted to kick off by starting with some of the conversations about therapy. And then I'd love to also understand how you take care of yourself and how you manage this space. Um, so first off, what are some of the common themes that you encounter with therapy, especially when it comes to South the South Asian community? Well, I think you very much spoke to it right in the beginning, which is that tension between um, the collectivist cultures that we come from and then um, integrating into more of an individualistic society, a society that values, um, you know, autonomy and authenticity um, many, many times um, above relationship connection and interdependence and so you know i think what can happen is that especially as children of immigrants so south asian children of immigrants that are born here in the u.s 
is um, that when navigating friendships and romantic relationships with others who are born here in the U.S., raised here in the U.S., um, that there may be um, some disappointment or boundary confusion mm. um, that happens where having been raised in a family culture that comes from a collectivist context, um, we might um, be over giving. Um, and because there is this assumption or expectation that um, others will reciprocate, right? Because these are the kinds of unspoken agreements that we've experienced in our families. And in reality, what happens is that other folks are more um, focused on their individual needs. And so they might be overwhelmed by um, the level of connection and intimacy that's normal for South Asian folks. Um, or they might be able to receive that, that love and generosity and then not reciprocating. Oh. Um, and so that experience can be really confusing and painful. And then sort of on the flip side and within the family context, um, you know, the family might have expectations of um, togetherness and connection that aren't um, normalized in the social context of, say, a young person growing up in the United States at school or something like that. And, you know, that teenager wants to spend time with their friends on the weekends and the family is like, you know, maybe supportive of those relationships, but also um, really having um, more of an expectation to do things together as a family, to, um, you know, stay in contact when that child is like out with their friends um, and that that can kind of add to a sense of being different or being othered in social situations. So those are just like some small examples of the ways that those tensions play out. Yeah, gosh, they don't feel small because <laughs> I feel like they're such huge themes and those resonated with me so much. Um, I'll share a couple of ways that it has shown up for me, but I'd love to also see like, you know, where do you, how do you see this manifest as well? So um, to start with, I think one of the things you mentioned about the giving and how people receive that on the other end, it's interesting. I had that experience when I was 24. And I was dating this guy who's he's white and um, very American upbringing from the South was in the Navy. Um, we were doing long distance and mm. one of his first trips that he came, um, I prepared the his arrival as if I realized later as if my mom, you know, like the way my mom took care of us. And when I traveled to India to see her she would always ask, what's your favorite meal? She'll make sure like the meal is there. She would like set towels and put cute flowers as if it's like a boutique hotel and like really go over the top and be like, how can I take care of you? And, you know, I love that about my mom. 
I didn't realize how it comes across to others. So I asked him like, what do you love? And he's like, okay, like pesto pasta. I made him his like <laughs> pumpkin cheesecake and kept asking him like, what do you need? And he's like, it's, it's really okay, Lahari. You can just like relax. Like I don't, and I realized too, cause he didn't appreciate it. And I didn't realize like, you know, now looking back, I sort of realized, you know, on one hand, I started to get really guarded, but I realized over time I tempered to a moderate where you realize like it's okay to give, but also okay to have boundaries and wait to sort of get to that level of giving to where someone can appreciate it or you're even at that intimacy level, um, which was something that like was very new to me when I encountered it and made me feel really bad, actually, that like, wh- why am I? yeah, am I smothering him or something? But that's how I saw love mm. given in my family. Yeah. I Thank you for speaking to that because, um, you know, I think that the shame, right, that feeling bad is what ends up, um, you know, getting internalized and, and becoming a source of kind of alienation from ourselves. Yeah. And, um, what, you know, might have been received as something so loving um, by you from your mother, then being something that's like misunderstood or not fully received um, has a way of just kind of creating this underlying sense of there's something wrong with me. And like my natural impulses are um, wrong or inappropriate. And mm-hmm. in actual, yeah. I like what you said about, um, you know, getting to the place where that would be appropriate, um, you know, in the cultural context. And I think it's important for us to remember, and this is like part of what I try to offer um, in my work with, with clients that um, have similar experiences, is that, hey, that's a, a beautiful thing. Like that, that um, desire to, um, you know, be caring and generous and, mm-hmm. um, and loving towards others or that particular way of expressing that like is a good thing. And it's just that, um, we want to be able to, to determine or identify what would be appropriate in a given situation or context and to sort of like have the the best be able to access the best of our kind of culture of origin, as well as the best of the culture that we're living in and that we're socializing in. Absolutely. Um, And I, I found that over time, and this is just my experience. And so you're you're the expert here. um, But I found that over time, it took a lot of work. So if I was your patient at first, and you said, like, it's a beautiful thing, Lahari, I'd be like, it doesn't feel that way in Raleigh. You know? like, it feels like I'm being so vulnerable and giving. And I don't know, it just makes me feel awkward because maybe I'm like too much or something. But over time, as I worked on it with my own therapist and just kind of identified, it does actually help because also this type of giving nature that we have in our cultures, again, truly benefit from it. And I I, ha- I have very little to complain about it. Mm-hmm. I can see though, sometimes it depletes you too, because it, there's so much giving that it's sometimes at the cost of your own self-care and boundaries and health. And so I found myself being able to preserve more of myself by shifting to that approach of like, how much do I want to give and 
you know, what, what matches the relationship with this person. I don't have to give this much to this person who I also sometimes like end up feeling really uncomfortable with, for example, or, and over time it became a really wonderful way to really efficiently allocate my energy, which sounds really like factory, like to look at your body that way and mind that way. But I think it helped me become better at then showing up for the people at different levels, but um, being able to be more consistently giving, if that makes sense, versus extreme burnout, extreme burnout. Absolutely. Yeah, I think um, there's something liberating about letting go of of that um, expectation or obligation um, to show up mm-hmm. in in that way. And you know, I think of my own mom who. Um, doesn't really like to have people over anymore because she can't have people over for dinner without making like eight dishes. And I'm like, <laughs> mom, you don't have to do that. We can, you know, we could just have some people over and <laughs> order food or make one or two dishes. And, um, you know, but because um, that, cultural expectation is so um, built in, it's like, it actually can get in the way of, of her being able to connect yeah. with others. So I think that's really important um, to find that balance. Thank you for sharing that because I think a lot of us can um, connect to that as you know, like, especially with hospitality and how it comes to, again, <laughs> our relationships socially. And I, you know, I, want to understand too, like, you know, we've, we've talked about our own personal examples, but again, broadly speaking, since you can't talk about specific people or anything, but like, where do you see these types of, how do these tensions manifest? Like, what are some themes that you've seen of the way this tension is? This is how it shows up for people in these situations. I'm going to kind of create a fictional character here for you. So like, let's say, um, 20-something South Asian American woman um, who is a child of immigrants who um, has some close friends, who has some people that probably would consider her their very best friends and who um, is constantly feeling alone and um, isolated. Mm. And so there's a disconnect there, right? Between, um, maybe what it would look like from the outside or even how her friends are perceiving their relationship and then how she's actually experiencing those relationships and, and how, um, the, you know, and I think one of the things that, that happens this is more of a subtlety, but it's really impactful is that, um, I think, you know, in a collectivist cultural context, there's less of a need to articulate one's needs mm-hmm. because, um, you know, in, in the family context, there may be, you know, that call for mom every single day and you never have to say, Hey, would you check on me once in a while? <laughs> right. Um, and so, you know, I see this playing out in people's like intimate friendships where um, they're not necessarily getting the level of emotional care or intimacy mm-hmm. um, that may be 
needed. And yet um, the ability to like ask, ask for those needs to be met um, is also a skill that's already been developed. Ah, yeah, that, that really makes sense. I'm really intrigued by this topic because needs are something that sometimes in the South Asian community, I wonder our journey and relationship with vouching for our needs. And I say that because typically growing up, we, again, grossly generalizing, but we tend to think that the needs for us are the needs of our family. Um, We don't tend to typically ask for, you might need this mom and dad, but I need this because, you know, and I'm not talking about like a toy or um, an ice cream cone, but I mean like psychological, emotional, mental needs, physical needs. And so it could create dissonance if you're thinking like, oh, my needs might be separate from what my family or community needs. And um, we are also taught that having and making space for our personal needs, especially if they're different, can be selfish or self-serving. I also feel like our families tend to be very, we share because we share all those needs. um, Either they're like assumed needs, like, you know, oh, you're not performing well in school. It's probably because you need a tutor or you need to change schools. And maybe the need is really like, hey, I haven't been mentally feeling well. I actually need more therapy or I need to maybe spend more time at home or, you know, so I think that's where sometimes I feel like it's foggy with our Asian communities. Um, And so that can make it really difficult in turn to uh, or maybe delayed that process of understanding like, oh, these are the needs I have. It's okay to have them. And wow, when I ask for them, I feel a lot better. I feel like my best self. Yes. You know, I think that, um, I think this is, this is such a common experience in, in South Asian community. And, and for many of us, um, that is experienced as love. Um, and there are times when, um, that imposition, right. Of the familial, um, assumptions or expectations, mm-hmm. um, you know, can be experienced as um really oppressive right like for example if someone is transgender and their family is not affirmative of that identity and Mm -hmm. um their assumptions of the person's needs like oh you must be so lonely because you know you're not pretty enough and like let me help you you know um feminize yourself or masculinize yourself or um and so that um like assumed sense of what each other need can also be damaging and can really feel like you know the opposite of love absolutely Um, you know whether or not that's the intention yeah that's actually really profound i've that makes total sense um and you know i think we're talking about like also to backtrack a little we're talking about like hopefully if you're also starting to do the work and you start to identify these tensions um but also to even get to therapy, for example, sometimes it can be really difficult um, or, or quite the journey. So um, what do you think is behind the South Asian stigma around seeking therapy? And like, why do you think it exists? So I think that um, part of the immigrant experience is to have to really hustle, mm-hmm. you know, to have to um, really focus on the goal 
and work, you know, steadily towards it. And so slowing down to pay attention to emotions, um, you know, was not necessarily an option, right, for many of um, our immigrant parents or, you know, even current generation immigrants. Um, so, you know, I think it's really common in um, South Asian community specifically um, to have a mindset of, you know, don't dwell on it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I hear my mom's voice in my head often saying, uh, put it out of your mind, you know, like just set that aside and keep going, like stay focused. And um, so I think, you know, the idea of slowing down and feeling can, can be um, really threatening to um, one's sense of success, you know, being able to accomplish everything that um, has been needed in order to, you know, make a comfortable life for ourselves here in the US. Um, it almost sounds like they didn't have time for it. And so they kept moving on. Exactly. And one of the things that happens is like, when we've been, you know, repressing emotions, just as humans, when we've repressed our feelings, and um, let's say traumatic experiences or unresolved grief, and then we do make room for it, it can be overwhelming because we're feeling everything at once. Mm-hmm right? We haven't um, kind of been processing things as they've been happening. Then, you know, when we do take a moment, it it can feel like too much to process at once. So I think that's one kind of dimension of it, of the stigma. And then another is, um, you know, being in a racist society, mm-hmm. being in a cultural context that would, you um, pathologize anything different. And so, um, you know, I've, I've worked with South Asian clients who have had negative prior experiences in therapy with white therapists who, um, you know, didn't understand the cultural context and who may have pathologized things that were actually quite normal um, in the family of origin, like, you know, um, thinking that, you know, something was um, dysfunctional that was actually like a healthy part of the family culture. Um, For example, you know, being in in daily contact or um, the parents sharing about things that were happening within their marriage with the children Mm -hmm. um, and, and things like that, that from kind of a Western psychological point of view really look like, um, you know, enmeshment, like lowered boundaries, um, role reversal and things like that. One of the things you mentioned about like the almost not having time as our parents were hustling. I, I, you know, I thought of this like character uncle auntie being like, you guys just have too much time on your hands. That's something we hear, right? Like too much time on this generation Mm -hmm. to like think about things and get sad or depressed. Like, so sometimes I feel like even I've, I think we've talked about depression before in our families and had that response, like my sister and I of like just having too much time or the luxury of the ability to even have like mental 
illness affect you? And um, it's such a strange response to get, of course. And because of those experiences, unfortunately, also like you get fr- like kind of upset at your culture of like, why is there a stigma? Mm-hmm. But I, the way you explained it helps me understand more of like the root cause. So that again, can have more empathy and compassion when talking to parents, for example, or other folks who don't quite seem to understand it. Um, the piece you mentioned too, about having experiences with therapy, I've only gone to two therapists, but the one I did have in Atlanta was, um, and it still is, she is white. Um, but she is, um, when I talked to her about my family, I always knew that she was kind of like, Unable, she was unable to really understand why those connections were there, why I talked to my parents every day. So very similar. And then at one point, she even said, like, in our textbook about the chapter about Asian Americans says that they're close to family. And it just felt so odd to me to be talked about that way. I was too young to really I was like 22. And I didn't really quite understand, like, how damaging that can be. Um, I kept seeing that person and eventually I just moved to San Francisco and stopped seeing her. But um, mm-hmm. I remember just like now looking back, I'm like, damn, like I'm not a chapter in a book. Right. So like mm-hmm. that piece can be really harmful. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I like to think that the, we've come a long way in terms of um, understanding how to do cross-cultural work mm-hmm. on the field of psychology but the reality is there's still a lot of like stereotyping that goes on and a sense of um you know if I if I have if I make some generalizations if I can understand some generalizations about a person's culture attempt for supporting someone from that culture rather than what I think is really important is is being able to actually as a therapist, um, look at and understand our own worldview, our own cultural experience, mm-hmm. and have that like self-reflective capacity, so that when we're interacting with people from like a diverse range of cultures and experiences, um, we know where we're sitting and where we're, the lenses that we're looking through, and yeah. we can um, see beyond that. I do think all this being said, though, that our normalization and ease of access to therapy is still a little there's opportunity with the South Asian community we're still working on that true comfort and um, freedom around you know I go to therapy or I do alternate forms of um, help and support to be able to work on my mental state emotional psychological how do you see this relationship evolving with our community you know, even though there's more awareness now, there may be um, a lack of access to resources or, um, you know, a lack of awareness about, like, how to go about pursuing, mm-hmm. like, mental health care. Um, and so, you know, I think one of the things that's um, happening more, that's that's more available now are um, access to, you know, therapists that reflect some of the identities of our communities. So um, there exists, um, you know, a Therapists of Color Network in the Bay Area, which is a directory that has um, therapists of like many different ethnic backgrounds, um, including South Asian 
and other um, immigrant communities. There is a queer therapists of color directory for therapists based mostly in Northern California Bay Area, but um, also throughout California. And then there's the National Queer and Trans Therapists of Color Network um, that is a national network of um, queer and trans therapists of color across the US. Um, so there are now more ways for people to find therapists that um, reflect you know, the lived experience of a diverse range of folks in our community. So that, um, you know, is, is really helpful. And then um, additionally, I think that there is, it's, it's getting more normalized, at least in, um, you know, the, on the West Coast, or maybe like in some of the larger cities um, in the US, that this connection, right, between mind and body, um, and and looking at mental health holistically. So looking at lifestyle choices and how, um, you know, that also affects um, our psychological well-being. So, you know, one of the things that I think can happen um, in our South Asian community is like overworking and not, mm -hmm. um, you know, spending enough time um, with rest and relaxation or creative outlets um, or balancing um, physical activity with time spent, like sitting in front of the computer and working all day. Um, so, you know, I think there's there's an increased understanding about that. And, um, you know, I, of course, like from our cultural heritage, there's so many wonderful resources that we as South Asians um, you know, have access to um, that, you know, growing up, we might have thought were like, you know, kind of irrelevant to our lives here. But um, I think a lot of adults are, are understanding and starting to incorporate like, oh, you know, the wisdom of Ayurveda or mm. the practice of yoga and meditation um, that can um, support one's like, overall holistic well-being. That makes total sense. How do you see anxiety and depression appear amongst South Asian clients? Obviously, we all experience this, whether you're South Asian or not. But it seems like we are still getting coming to terms with talking about this publicly. Yeah, absolutely. So um, that topic of shame that, that came up earlier, I mean, I think about depression in many different ways. Um, and one of the ways that I think about depression is as internalized oppression, right? Mm. It's where we um, kind of internalize the negative messages or ideas that we receive for from our environment about ourselves and start to feel like something is inherently wrong with us. And um, that underlying negative sense of self um, can really contribute to both depression and anxiety. Um, right. Another way I think about depression is as um, energetic depletion, right? Where we're just mm -hmm. like, don't have the energy um, to, to access joy, to feel good about life, to, you know, pursue things beyond the, the bare necessities. And I think that um, can also be in relationship to that Kind of workaholism, overworking um, that I mentioned before. 
that constant striving um, in order to, you know, develop that sense of stability as like a relatively new um, immigrant community. That's totally fair. And a lot of that I personally connect with. But the thing that even I sometimes that like kind of, you know, angel and devil by by your shoulder, the devil part of me would say, but your parents didn't have to take a break. They kept working hard. Um, How come you're the one struggling with this? And quote, quote, don't even have it as hard as your parents, right? I think there's a lot of guilt sometimes of like, okay, it's not like I was dropped into a country that I don't know anything about, you know, um, personally, for example, my parents moved when I was 17 back to India. And when people would feel bad for me, like, or like just extend sympathy of like, that must be hard. I kept trying to like, again, wave it off as like, well, it's not like I don't know this country. Like, it's not like, you know, my dad who like moved from India to Utah. Um, so it's a like, I think there's, it's easy to sometimes mitigate our, and uh, fa- unfortunately fail to recognize too, when we need a break, because there's so many excuses we can come up with. How do you address that with your clients? Cause I'm sure I'm not alone, not to flatter myself, but I feel like this is something we commonly talk about. Yes, you're not alone, Lahari. <laughs> um, Thank you. And yeah, yeah, and and that's and that's not flattery. I think that's like a very b- basic human need, you know, for us to know that we're not alone. And, and this is really um, common, right, in the experience of you know first generation um, South Asian ch- children of immigrants. Um, is is a sense of um, well, like I'm not struggling as much as my parents did, and so why is it? Why am I having such a hard time? Right. And I think you know that that sense that um, we are so distinctly separate from our parents is really kind of the problematic thinking in there. Mm. So so we have inherited what they haven't processed. We've both we've inherited some um, of the the benefits of the sacrifices they've made, of course, um, and then we've also um, inherited what what has not been attended to, um, you know, emotionally through through our ways of relating with them, and then also. Um, you know, on a biological level, there's a whole field of study about how um, trauma is passed through the DNA. And so um, we are processing what has not been processed um, by the previous generation. And, you know, when I think about it like that, right, we think about our kind of ancestral inheritance um, and the intergenerational patterns um, as more of like a kind of a, con- a continuum there you know it provides a kind of a context that you know now that we might have a certain level of stability of security um now we can slow down and mm. and take care of our mental and emotional well-being and um you know, that, that this is a good thing, that this is, you know, part of why those sacrifices were made so that we could be in a place where, um, you know, it would be possible for us 
to focus on our well-being. Um, so I, you know, I try to provide that framing that um, we we are, you know, I love the way that um, Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh talks about ancestry, where he says we are a continuation of them. I completely adore that thought and love the type of circle of life uh, philosophy that gets to. However, if I had to don my complaining whiny Lahari hat, um, sometimes it does feel like not only are we doing the emotional and psychological labor to unpack our lives, but if our parents are passing along the sort of unassembled IKEA furniture of psychological work, then we're doing both. And so it feels really heavy, the load and the responsibility. And of course, it's not like we do all this and then we pass it back to our parents. We actually do the work so that we can better understand our parents and therefore us. So sometimes I wish, you know, gosh, like I just wish my parents would have done this work themselves. Like, why, you know, it, it feels like a lot more of a heavier burden because there's two that we're managing. I hear that. Yeah. You know, I think um, in some ways, you know, it makes so much sense that, you know, we should only have to deal with what's ours, you know, and, and yet um, every, every human being alive today has to to deal with their inherited ancestral trauma. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're not, you know, it's not unique. We're not alone in that. Um, And so, you know, it's both, you know, we get to be alive. We get to be here because um, they found a way to survive Mm -hmm. and, you know, to provide enough that that we could have this experience. And so um, it's not that we have to, um, work through our parents' issues, even for their benefit. Um, but it's that, um, you know, we get to, um, clear and process through, um, you know, what we're carrying so that, that we can, you know, be more happy and fulfilled and at peace and so I think, you know, if we look at it like that, um, it helps alleviate some of that kind of sense of a burden. Yeah. Right. That, you know, um, in many traditions, there's this idea that like when we heal something, we're healing it for ourselves and seven generations forward and seven generations back. Damn. And <laughs> yeah. <it. laughs> <laughs> and and the good thing, luckily, you know, we we don't have to know everything that's ever happened um, in our in our family history. In order to do that, we can just start with what's alive and and here. Yeah, you know, in our own experience. Yeah, I mean, I think I just get butt hurt sometimes about like the gosh, this is so much work. But you're totally right, and. In the end of the day, a lot of this work only benefits us because it allows us to be more compassionate and understand our parents better um, or the relatives, whoever has informed and influenced us. I, you know, this reminds me a lot of this moment I had with my dad. Um, you know, when I was 17 and my sister was in middle school, my parents moved back to India, which I mentioned a couple of times on the podcast. And 
when it happened, my dad shared it as a very matter of fact, like foot down, head of the household, we're doing this and didn't really understand how to, we basically didn't understand why we were doing it other than just kind of like we wrote in the blank. We were like, man, he's ruining our lives. Like everything was going to be so much harder. And and it truly was challenging and still is sometimes, especially, you know, COVID and what's going on in India right now. But, uh, you know, here we are fast forward uh, 12, 13 years later, and he and I are talking and he expressed his reasons of leaving, which were burnout and how much his health was suffering and how much he felt emotionally and mentally like a different person. He's like, I just felt like I was falling apart with my some of my you know health issues. I wasn't doing well and I really got back on track. I couldn't handle the politics anymore of corporate and some of those like male race dynamics. And so I was like, wow, dad, I understand you so differently. And I expressed how I was bummed that we didn't have more of a stronger culture around vulnerability in our household, because had I known this was going on with my dad, had my sister known this was going on with our dad, we probably could have shown up differently because back then we just thought like, oh gosh, they're just making a move that we hate to spite us. But now you know, if we had known all this, we would have probably been a lot more kind and understanding about it because we just want our dad to be happy and healthy and present in our lives. And so um, when I said that, he was like, oh, Lahari, no point in like sitting in the regret and past. And I was like, OK, well, he doesn't not quite the discussion I meant, but like I was, I guess, in my head hoping he'd be like, yeah, you're gee golly, you're right, Lahari. Like we should have a culture of vulnerability. So can't shoot for the stars. But I do appreciate like even if he didn't have his moment of like, you know, therapeutic, cathartic understanding, at least I understood him differently. And now I can be a better daughter to him, more supportive, um, maybe hang on to less resentment about the move, et cetera, um, and move forward. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're saying is so true. It's like as as your perspective shifts and evolves, then, then that um, does you know, affect the way that you show up in your, in your relationships with your parents. Um, And that's enough, you know, and, and if there's space for deeper conversation and reflection, then that's wonderful. And also um, just the, the shift in your orientation can, can begin to make room for, for more possibilities. So on that topic of deeper understanding, I think one of the, most devastating missed opportunities for a a deeper understanding in our community can be around suicide. And especially when we talk about anxiety and depression, um, there is still a lot of work to do, I think, for our communities to see the, when unaddressed, how these issues can contribute to, or for other reasons, if someone feels suicidal, why, that might be. And there is a lot of shame and stigma around this still or a perception that it's weakness or selfish, et cetera. Um, Very like hush hush that we approach it. And so can you help us understand a little bit better about the space in our community? One of the the ways that I think about um, suicidal ideation, you know, which is just like when people start having, you know, thinking about self-harming and about ending their lives um, is, is that it's a trauma response. I think Mm -hmm. of it as part of 
our flight response, right? Where it's kind of an escape fantasy. Like things are feeling so unmanageable and overwhelming that um, the only way that I can imagine having relief is by not being here Mm. anymore. And so I feel like that really speaks to a culture of silence, yeah. right? Where things might be going on in people's lives, um, like that don't feel safe or possible to talk about. Mm. Um, And um, often in the South Asian community, there can be a culture of silence related to issues within the family, um, such as domestic violence, or sexual abuse. And, um, and so I think, um, like what you're doing, Lahari, with this podcast and giving our community a voice and normalizing these conversations around mental health um, is so important, because um, one of the things that can really happen um, when, you know, people are struggling with anxiety and depression is this sense of isolation and the sense of being alone. And, um, you know, that's, I think that's another thing that leads to that sense of hopelessness. And the only way out is to actually like, leave the body, Mm -hmm. right. But um, when, when people um, have an experience of, um, you know, being able to be seen and heard and accepted unconditionally, when people are, you know, um, not blamed for for the traumas they've experienced um you know that's when there can be the sense of connection and hope that um would lead to you know a sense of possibility about like being able to work through um the struggles that folks are facing yeah absolutely so you know if anything i can say it's like breaking silence about all of these issues around mental health, around domestic violence, around sexual assault, um, and just, you know, making, creating more and more spaces where it's safe to talk about these things. I think there is so much truth and power to what you just said. I feel like sometimes what we miss is even the ability to take that first step forward because of all the hoopla and hush hush and stigma surrounding the space around mental health, someone who might need help is afraid to even speak up or feel like even if I'm ready to speak up, the community is ready to accept me or catch me and um, people will listen and respect me and make me feel comfortable and allow me that safe space. So how can we be more supportive if someone does bring this up, um, if we have a friend or even us ourselves are experiencing such thoughts, what is the best way to approach this? You know, I think some of the most important messages to get across to someone who might be struggling with suicidality is to um, just let them know that you're there for them, that they're not alone. because again, the isolation can be um, such a huge part of um, that sense of hopelessness mm-hmm. and um, you know the need to escape. So you know, letting folks know that they matter to you, like reinforcing the um, unconditional nature of the relationship, um, so that you know 
um, they ha- they know that they can come to you and that you're there to listen um, and not to fix. It's really important, you know, that um, uh, people have a, have a space where they can reflect on and express their feelings. And um, however, um, you know, painful those feelings might be. And I think, you know, we across all different cultural and ethnic communities, um, you know, people have the tendency to want to, um, you know, make someone feel better. Mm -hmm. Right. And that can actually be experienced as, um, as invalidating to someone who's so deep in, you know, their depression or um, struggling, you know, with post-traumatic stress disorder, um, it can actually feel really alienating and invalidating. And so um, as much as possible, um, just making the space to listen and to show that you care. Um, and, and the biggest resource that, that you know, you can provide is just letting that person know that you are available to them. Absolutely. You know, and I'll offer myself up as an example, but recently I was struggling with a lot of anxiety and depression. So debilitating that sometimes I had thoughts of kind of just drifting my car and I'm not proud to admit it, but that's how I felt. Um, And, you know, when I was starting to open up to some friends about this, um, I found that people who weren't just my best friends were also equally there for me and folks that I sometimes don't even catch up with twice a year because, you know, that type of friend that you're like really fond of this person, but somehow the time keeps slipping. We keep trying to schedule calls and it doesn't work out. And one particular person like that who means a lot to me, but again, just life is busy, reached out and helped me feel so supported and heard and validated she opened up about her own experiences and they were so similar. You know, we experienced very similar things due to different reasons, but you know, there were so many moments that we were like, did you feel this? Yeah, me too. And I honestly felt like it was like something we were kind of bonding over. Um, and while it didn't solve it for me, you know, and you know, I didn't and hang up the phone and feel like instantly healed. It was a collection of that type of care from close friends, friends that are more acquaintances, um, you know, therapy, uh, self, just, you know, just contemplation and all these things come into play and I was able to feel better, but, um, and medication shout out. Um, but I think like this is something that I truly, truly value is we feel so much shame and it becomes so, even if you know, You'll feel less alone if you speak up in these moments. It it can be very difficult to even say things out loud or um, speak up about it um, for many reasons. And so just the value of the right people listening, making you feel safe, accepted, loved, despite thoughts that you're sort of embarrassed to express um, is so powerful and touching. So I wanted to transition into the kind of area of relationships um, and especially start with you first. So you mentioned to me that you are a South Asian queer MFT 
And I'd love to understand like what that journey was like with yourself, your family and your community as you navigated this path as identifying yourself as a queer woman. Great question. Um, So I am someone who is attracted to people and has relationships with people of um, all different genders. And so it actually took me a while to to recognize my own queerness um, because I, you know, some of my, like my earlier um, romantic relationships were with the opposite sex and, um, and those were meaningful to me. And so it wasn't until I was like in my, probably in my mid twenties um, that I um, started to you know, explore same-sex attraction. And um, I was really fortunate in that, you know, um, both of my parents were already allies Mm. to the LGBTQ community. Um, You know, they had friends that were gay and lesbian. And um, so I grew up um, with a sense that you know, we, you know, embrace queer people. (laughs) And, um, and so I I, I feel like I was really fortunate to be able to um, explore my own sexuality without the fear that that would um, mean that I would like lose connection or support from my family. Of course, I think going back to what you've also mentioned, you know, no one wants to feel alone. So I can only imagine how that held you back in a way, but so glad to hear that your family was so supportive, Um, especially hearing how you mentioned earlier that, you know, your tone in your voice is so proud of your family for having more of a progressive tone earlier when we talked about where you're from. Um, And so Um, I'm just so glad that was your experience and that you are there as a representative to also help folks feel represented um, in this space too of therapy. You had mentioned a large contingent of yours is from the LGBTQ community. So how can, you know, honestly, how can we better understand some of the themes and battles that our counterparts face, you know, when they identify in this community um, so that we can be more sympathetic or supportive? Um, So I think, you know, straight and cisgender allies to the LGBTQ community, um, you know, one of the ways that um, they can be supportive is by, um, you know, not leaving it to queer folks to speak up about um, issues of discrimination or even inclusion, mm-hmm. right? So um, like if, if you're in a space um, where folks are talking about um, queer people or trans people in a way that is um, disparaging or even, you know, more subtly kind of making other um, to speak up, to say like, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, hey, you know, um, these are my friends, these are, you know, my community members, and um, I love them, and, you know, um, speak to whatever the, the, 
needs may be in a situation like that. So, um, you know, a lot of times um, things can be ge really gendered. Mm -hmm. um, like, let's say, a planning for a wedding, <laughs> right? And there's like the bachelorette party and the bachelor party. And like, you know, what about our queer community and people who are not fitting into those binary gender roles? And like, where are they going to be invited and included? And, um, you know, what activities are going to be like, feel um, appropriate for them and in their experience and gender identity? Um, and often, um, simply asking mm -hmm. is just fine, you know? Um, so I think a lot of times, you know, especially in South Asian community, people are afraid that if we acknowledge differences or if we talk about them, that it's going to be harmful. And I think it's actually much more harmful not yeah. to, um, but to actually be open and curious and ask like, you know, um, you know, what, what would be comfortable and appropriate for you and not to assume, right. Not to assume a person's Definitely. sexual orientation. Of course, like we have such an epic culture of um, setting up, right? Like yeah. setting people up with potential romantic partners. And that's a place where um, there can be a lot of assumptions are made. And so um, making room for the possibility that a person might be um, interested in relationship with um, someone of you know, the same sex or even a non-binary gender, um, you know, could be really like radically affirming yeah. um, for that person's experience and identity. Right. And, you know, in Donda Brown, we talk a lot about multiple identities and especially when we compound South Asian times LGBTQ community there's a whole multitude of experiences and identity going on. And so can you tell us a little bit more about how this appears? Um, I mean, I think, honestly, it's not as different as you might think. I mean, you talked about, um, you know, the person that you were dating kind of misunderstanding the cues mm -hmm. and, um, you know, same things happen in queer relationships and, and same-sex relationships. And, and also, um, you know, intercultural relationships. So that's another piece. Like the LGBTQ community is like, you know, we might be navigating um, other kind of cultural intersections that pose unique challenges beyond just the LGBTQIA like identity or experience. And so, um, you know, being in the US, it's like, yes, we are navigating um, the, the dominant culture, mm -hmm. um, but we're also, you know, might be relating with people from other immigrant communities mm -hmm. or within other subcultures. Yes, I totally appreciate that perspective. And basically what I'm getting at is like digging a little deeper. 
What I'm basically getting at is, for example, in my perspective, it can be challenging being a dark person in a world that is rocked by white supremacy or um, being a woman in a male dominated field. Um, you know, and so every, a lot of folks have that one thing or multiple that make them feel, gosh, like I'm working uphill here. For one thing that I don't have to worry about and is a privilege is that I, if I'm asking someone before when I was single, like asking someone to set me up or someone's like, Hey, I know a friend, chances are it's going to be a man. And because I'm, I identify as straight, like I can benefit from that assumption. But if I do not identify as straight, then it's a lot of presumption on someone's part to think like, Oh, I'm going to set you up. You look like a woman. Let me set you up with a guy. Right. So that is something that I feel like we could garner more sympathy towards, especially because a lot of our content, like while it is, you know, such a great momentum happening with more of our South Asian voices, um, it's also been a pro- process of bringing in acceptance for our LGBTQ counterparts in the South Asian community and saying like, hey, the world isn't just, you know, um, fair skinned Brahmin, Hindu um, men and straightness. You know, we have the acceptance of all and celebrating the beauty of the wide spectrum of our community. Absolutely. I mean, I think that the um, desirability piece is a huge part of socialization. So I could speak to that, like, you know, how um, the assumption that um, we are cisgendered, meaning that our um, sex assignment at birth matches Mm. the gendered expectations associated with it in our cultural context so that like a person assigned female at birth identifies as a woman for example um that assumption um you know within our culture and from our families um can be you know incorrect Mm -hmm. and actually harmful and so um ideas about desirability and like worthiness of a mate or partnership based on that um, can also, you know, create a lot of inner conflict and suffering for, um, you know, trans or non-binary people who, um, you know, whose desirability um, may be completely independent from their ability to, you know, fulfill traditional gender expression or appearance yeah um and and so you know working with um young people and even adults to like affirm a sense of self-worth based on their own unique authentic expression rather than like imposing an idea of um you know what would be necessary in order to make someone you know worthy of a mate um, yeah. is, you know, a, could be a really um, helpful and affirmative shift. Absolutely. I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done here, what South Asian community or not. And where I do get disappointed with the South Asian community is that we're still working so hard on also from a mainstream perspective, representing our LGBTQ sisters and brothers stories 
accurately, joyously, um, and represented by, you know, people who are not straight. Um, and I think, you know, for example, I saw a post from Anjali Remy, who's a trans activist. She actually has um, started and co-founded a organization called Parivar locally in the Bay Area. And she posted this thing about a Bollywood movie where the premise of the horror movie is that this really prominent actor is trans. He dresses as a woman and that's the scary part. Um, and he also like commits crimes. And so she was like, seriously do better, um, which like 1000% agree. Um, and I think this is often how we've grown up watching the gay, lesbian, trans community. And um, is that like, if you're not, if you're different from the gender you're born into, then there's something like you've deviated from the norm. And like in these movies they show. So I just, the the messaging is very upsetting. And you know, this isn't just Bollywood, like Psycho, one of our most beloved horror films represents very poorly the fact that someone who has mental illness is also apparently like dressing as a woman. So they confuse the meaning be between those two things and it represents it really poorly. Absolutely. And, you know, when you say, um, you know, born into the gender, um, it's like, actually, you know, gender, what we're learning is um, something that, it, you know, is both innate and also, um, you know, is expansive and can yeah. develop and evolve over time. And so, you know, I think that there's um, that there is so much work to do. And also, there's so much progress. And I think it's important mm -hmm. to recognize that too, we're in a really different place that we can even look at that kind of a representation in a film and see it as problematic. Yes. Um, and um, so, you know, I think this piece about um, not assuming that we know and and letting and allowing people to self-identify and self-express mm -hmm. um, is seems to be a way that that we can you know move forward with um, as much care as possible. Yeah. Earlier, Nirali, you had mentioned sexual health, um, and domestic violence. And, you know, um, that's something that actually like sticks with me a lot because often I find that this is something that might happen in our communities, but it doesn't get talked about. Um, and, you know, honestly, like I'll speak for myself, myself and other friends I've spoken to who are South Asian American, we have a lot of these stories in our past um, and with our families and even if removed a couple of generations, but it really shapes the way that we get to know our family history. So how do we work through our trauma in a like society that has normalized it, quote, quote, in a degree, um, but it's also there's this stigma surrounding it and we just sort of casually deal with it on the side while operating in a society that might um, draw more attention to it or might try to talk about it differently? This is a really wonderful and really complex topic that you bring up. Um, and it, it's there's kind of this paradox between um, 
sexual assault being really normalized in South Asian culture mm-hmm. and at the same time um, not spoken about. And it's kind of like, oh, yes, you know, that happens. That just happens. Right. And, and, you know, it's not that big of a deal and don't make a big deal of it. And, of course, we know that it is a big deal. And so I think, um, you know, like you and your friends being able to talk about it with each other and break that silence is really powerful, you know, to be able to acknowledge and reflect on the ways that it has impacted you and how you, you know, how we can all work towards um, creating a culture um, where this is not normalized Mm -hmm. Um, because the thing is that it doesn't have to be right. Right. Even though it is common, that doesn't mean that it's okay. Um, And so, you know, I think being South Asian American, being here in the United States, one of the things that can happen is like, even though in recent years, there's more open, there's more of an openness with the Me Too movement and, and, um, you know, women across and, you know, all different races and people of various genders are, are speaking up and speaking out about sexual assault. Um, I think that there can still be this kind of um, cultural shame where, you know, we don't want to be identified as a group where this is an issue. Mm -hmm. We want to, um, you know, be accepted and, and, um, seen as, you know, healthy and, and like, mm, sorry, I'm not finding the right word, but we want to be accepted. We want to be respected. And, and that shame comes in and tells us that, that disclosing something vulnerably, um, would get in the way of that. And so, um, I think that, you know, one of the things that we can do as a community is to build alliances, Mm -hmm. right, with other communities, other immigrant communities, other communities of color, communities based on various experiences like that of sexual assault, um, like that of the LGBTQIA community, like that of, um, you know, people that identify as women, in order, because, you know, it's really my belief that we are um, as strong as our relationships, we are strong as our networks. And so, um, you know, that shame dissolves when we um, are in connection. I love that, because it really is magical when you find that one, even just one connection point to feel less alone. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, unfortunately, like growing up, it might not have been modeled to us as much specifically with this topic and space. Um, and I think that's where, like, I've uh, unfortunately, like in my family, this is something that it almost seems like a rite of passage for most of the women in our families. And it's a sick kind of rite of passage. But the, in one case, um, the family didn't even believe this person um, and like hushed it. It wasn't even just about saving face within outside the family. It was like literally within the family. They were like downplaying it. Um, and to me, that's just so like it's that was so sad when we think about like then this person grows up 
with, and I'm obviously purposefully kind of being vague with it, but, um, like this person like now grows up with like, my family doesn't even believe me. Um, and then what type of modeling does that create for this individual's psyche? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it is, um, it adds to the trauma of Mm -hmm. the initial experience, right? When survivors are not believed or their experience is minimized or they are told that it was their fault or, um, you know, just to be quiet and, and, you know, keep it under the rug. Um, So, you know, honestly, this is something that I see across communities that um, Mm -hmm. silencing within the family. And I think it's really, you know, part of rape culture and this is the reason that these cycles continue so um, I'm so glad that you're bringing this up and breaking the silence just in asking the questions Um, and you know for families that are out there and wondering how they can respond and address this differently I think the most important thing is to believe the survivor you know believe the person Mm -hmm. um, who's experienced this and understand that there's nothing that anyone can do to make them um, deserve to have this experience. And the responsibility really falls on the person who um, did the assaultive behavior and then um, on the culture of silence. And so, um, you know, believing survivors and then um, centering their needs, right? So. Yes. Um, not forcing them to be at family gatherings where there's someone that they're not comfortable with right. um, or not keeping them silent and, and stopping them from protecting other people in the family, for example, or not stopping them from seeking the support of therapy or support groups. Yes. Um, and I'm just, yeah. I was going to say, I'm so glad, like I can ask the question, but I'm so glad that you are open to answering it and providing your expertise and observations around this, because I think often like how to actually support also can be tricky. And like your point about like, believe the survivor, like could not agree more. And I think that's what we're seeing more and more is folks, but you know, no one wants to be the person who has to speak like if people could choose, you know, when you think about all the ways that people gaslight, like, oh, it's for attention or whatever it is, like ridiculous like way to dismiss it. Um, no one wants to be in that situation. So to even speak up about it, like, wow, kudos to that individual for being so brave. Um, and I, I really feel like to your point about the piece of like, this isn't just exclusive to the South Asian community. This is unfortunately across most cultures, even American culture does a phenomenal job of um, preventing women from speaking up and, you know, even reading Know My Name um, from Chanel Miller, you're, you know, it's, it almost sometimes seems like you're just reading, like, this is one thing sickly that universally connects us. Um, And I just, like, I remember like growing up, like I, so I talked about it in another episode, but I was assaulted in an uh, elevator in India um, when I was 12 and then quite a few of, um, my relatives also like told, talk to me about their own experiences. And for a while I couldn't trust for some reason it, it resulted in issues around trust with Indian men and like, especially like engaging in friendships or relationships. And, um, but then like, you know, I, I told 
so like, you know, some of the men in my family eventually. And like, even then I would get the question, like, why aren't you dating? Or like, why are you racist against your own race? Like, why wouldn't you date or be friends with like Indian men? And I like would look at them like, you know, my experience with this, like, you know, like, why are you asking me like, as if like, I haven't had that affect me. Um, And, you know, obviously like growing up and like the more I talked about it with girlfriends, it was like, wow, like, yeah, like we kind of pretend these things don't exist in our family and we show up to very neutral grounds like dating or social scenes, et cetera. But if you have this in the background, like it's obviously going to affect you. So I hope this makes sense. Like, I I guess what I'm trying to say is like, it's sort of hard sometimes to like want to be normal, but then know like, shit, there's all this stuff that's not normal, (laughs) but like we have to unpack it. Um, But like, there's also this hesitancy because then you have to admit something actually wrong happened or something's wrong with you maybe. Yeah. And that can be the hardest part, you know, to, I think to, um, begin to open that door to, to the pain and how it's affected you. And I'm so sorry that that happened to you, Bahari. And, um, and I'm glad that, you know, you were able to speak up about it. And, you know, the, the process of recovering from sexual assault is uh, long term, mm-hmm. you know, I wish that wasn't the case. But the reality is that there are many layers um, to, to that kind of a healing process. And um, so, you know, beyond, um, you know, getting support from friends and family and, and breaking the silence and kind of regaining your power in that way, I think um, it's also it also can be really beneficial to seek out professional help and to see a therapist, you know, to do um, those deeper levels of trauma processing. Mm -hmm. So as we start to wrap our conversation, which I could talk to you for hours as evident with our recording, um, I would love to ask you a few final questions of, you know, generally, like, as you think about even just personally, your own identity as South Asian, when you look at if if you had to Nirali think about you know if only we you know could make some progress around blank in the South Asian community I feel like we would make major strides. What would that be for you? This is a complicated question, and so I have a kind of a complex answer for it. Um, but you know, one of the things that I see. Um, even within my own family in India who um, are Catholic and don't believe in the caste system, Mm -hmm. I notice that there is an awareness of these social hierarchies. Um, And, and I see this playing out in day-to-day life um, in a way that is a little bit different than what I see here in the U S. And so what I mean by that is like, here in the U.S., you know, um, I guess this depends certainly on um, your kind of orientation to um, social justice. But um, you know, if we see a problem in our communities, um, we might get curious about what's causing the problem and how to help and how to solve mm. it. Right? Like I'm here in Los Angeles and there's just like a massive homelessness crisis and it is overwhelming and I don't always know how to help, but I, um, 
I'm aware of it and I find it disturbing and I read about it and I try to see who's doing good work and where I can support. And I notice that, you know, maybe an issue of infrastructure, um, but I'm, I notice that um, one of the things that's really built in, right, to, to our South Asian societies, you know, back in, in South Asia is caste, right? And, yeah. and these social hierarchies. And so I think when we come here to the U.S., we can, not always, but we can tend to focus on our own community, our own um, health and well-being, and then like assimilating into the U.S. Um, kind of dominant culture and assume the values of that culture without enough of a critical lens on the dynamics of race relations in the United States. And I think it's because of the way that the caste system has kind of like normalized these, um, these class divisions. And, um, and so I think that really no one benefits from um, white supremacy or from the caste system. That's my personal point of view. And I know many people might disagree with me, but um, I don't think that um, any human being suffering is good for any of our mental health. And I I think that um, we actually will be more happy and fulfilled as people um, when we you know, when, when all of us humans are having what we need. Um, so it might seem broad <laughs> um, <laughs> to think about, you know, social justice in the context of mental health. But, you know, this, this is one of the things that um, I do think about quite yeah. a bit. And I, I think it, um, while broad, I completely see your connection to how that brings it back to mental health. And I think more people than we know would probably agree with this too, just <laughs> as much as there might be folks who disagree. Um, I think a lot of folks are even just waking up to this since last year. I think there's been this sort of stirring in our community of like, how can we be show up stronger and better and, you know, get rid of this um, racism that exists in our culture. Um, and so thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that perspective. Thank you. I think last but not least, I want to make sure that we cover some resources too, because you are full of wisdom, but because we can't all put time on your calendar constantly to get help um, and hear your thoughts on what we're experiencing, what are some resources that um, you might recommend that would be helpful for folks who are better trying to better educate themselves on mental health or seek help themselves? One of the things that um, people seem to do really well with um, that's been more possible in recent years is to seek professional mental health services from providers that reflect their identities. And so um, if you're in California, you can check out the Therapists of Color directory. There's a number of South Asian therapists listed there. There's also um, the Queer Therapists of Color Directory for therapists based out of um, mostly the Bay Area, but their license will hold throughout the state of California. And I might have, I'm recognizing, I might have already mentioned Mm -hmm. these resources earlier, but 
Um, there's the National Queer and Trans Therapists of Color Network um, for folks all over the country and um, private practice. And I believe there's a few South Asian therapists there. And then what I would um, also want to share are some community resources. So there are regional rape crisis centers all over the U.S. that often provide free counseling, free support groups um, for survivors of sexual assault. Um, Similarly, there are domestic violence organizations, some of which are South Asian Mm -hmm. run um, all over the country. Um, And so, you know, it might take a little bit of research, but do know that those resources are out there and are available um, for free. Um, And then I wanted to share about my friend, Anita Swadin's um, nonprofit organization called Mirror Memoirs. And primarily it's a storytelling project for queer and trans people of color, survivors of childhood sexual abuse. Um, And there's a digital audio archive of survivors telling their stories, not only of um, sexual assault and trauma, but also of resilience and healing. Um, And so that's a really wonderful organization to get involved with if you fit those identities. Um, And, you know, there is, I think, um, a lot of positive healing and um, forward, you know, movement and ending rape culture that has come through creative expression and through the arts. And so that's also um, a kind of a pathway that people can can use. So, you know, if you want to paint about it, if you want to write about it. Um, and um, I think, you know, bringing it more into the public narrative is great. Last but not least, we have the Chip Chip Round, which is just a fun way to get to know you, Nirali, uh, a little bit better. And so I'm going to ask you a few just fun questions and you have to let me know just what first pops into your mind. Do you feel ready for it? I think so. (laughs) All right. So let's kick it off with a food company says that you'll have a lifetime supply of blank. What product would you choose to have a lifetime supply of? Okay. This one's really easy for me because (laughs) I think I practically have a lifetime supply right now in my refrigerator of Hail Mary's almond peanut butter cups. (laughs) They... (laughs) I was waiting for this. Actually, sorry. Uh Sorry. Not almond peanut butter cups. Dark chocolate almond butter cups. Yes, they are so, so delicious. And they're sweetened with maple syrup, um, which is really nice that they don't have cane sugar for me anyway, because um, my body doesn't do so great with, with refined sugar. So it's a wonderful, decadent little treat that I could probably eat every day for the rest of my life. Yeah. It sounds like you have enough to do so. So live your best (laughs) life, Nirali. (laughs) Um, Speaking of sweets, I have to ask, and this is a little, uh, I'm going to slip this one in, but 
earlier you had mentioned you're from Goa and um, or your family's um, background. So do you know Bibinka as a result, how to make it? Okay. I know about Babinka because my partner is Filipino Mm -hmm. and I never had Babinka in my family. Um, So I do know Babinka in a Filipino context, which is so delicious. And I wish I knew how to make it, but I don't. Yes. Oh my gosh. No, how cool. I didn't know it was something in Filipino culture too. And I also didn't mean to Goa explain to you because <laughs> I only know of Babinka because <laughs> I went to Goa and this one restaurant, uh, Martin's Corner, which is I think really popular with like tourists too. Uh-huh. Um, but they served Babinka and I ordered like three plates because I was like, well, YOLO, I'm not going to come back to Goa for a while. And <laughs> yeah, that's when I realized like I just must master how to make this, but I was hoping you had a recipe maybe. I can, mm. uh, I'll, I'll ask around and yes. come back to you. With Maybe your partner would like to share. Yes. Um, <laughs> speaking of partner, what is the best kind of date night for you? Oh goodness. I think before the pandemic, I would have said, um, a lovely night in, you know, maybe cooking, a beautiful meal together, taking a stroll in the neighborhood, listening to our favorite music. Um, <laughs> but now that I have been <laughs> doing that every day, <laughs> doing that every day, um, I can't wait to be able to go to see some live music again. Um, you know, to, to go to an art gallery, um, yeah, I think usually something involving the arts is just a, like really, um, really, really good for my own mental health and a nice way to connect with my partner around something that we're both interested in. That makes sense. You're a swimmer. You had mentioned um, outside of this conversation, but what's the most magical place that you've swam at? Oh my goodness. Okay. I have it. I have a tie between two. So the first that pops into my mind right now is, um, this like, you know, swimming hole underneath a waterfall just outside of Goa. Um, yeah, at this amazing little like eco retreat center called wilderness, I think it's called, Mm -hmm. um, and it's quite a hike to get there, but it is um, just so sweet and magical. Um, yeah, really, really special um, place. And I think I was probably the only one swimming in the water. <laughs> Everybody else was in a little, were in little boats. But they said it, that it was okay and I could swim in it and it was safe. And, um, and so I did and it, and it was amazing. Yeah. Geez. So daring. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, uh, another place that comes to mind is um, there was a cenote just outside of Tulum, uh, which if you don't know, are like these really deep freshwater um, swimming holes oh, wow. in the Yucatan side of Mexico. And um, 
I remember what I swam in so many of them and it was like just incredible. But I remember one of them was inside of a cave um, that had so many bats nesting in the cave. Ah! And um, <laughs> okay, Bruce Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> I love bats. I know it's strange, but I love bats. And it was really something special to um, be able to get in that water there and to kind of be, feel like I was in their, in their home. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think that's um, strange at all. I just think it's because most of us are scared of bats. So we'd probably just be like, Ugh. but I feel like a, all your locations, super sexy B you are so bold and brave for like continuing <laughs> on in those caves with bats. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I, I, I don't know if it's sexy to get in the water underneath a bat cave, but it was, it was really, really special for me. So yeah, very badass. Um, as a therapist, what's a movie or show that portrayed therapy accurately and then just like did not get it at all? Oh goodness. I mean, I think there's countless portrayals of therapy that are really inaccurate. <laughs> um, one of them that I particularly actually like to watch um, <laughs> is In Treatment, uh, which is a show on HBO. And, um, you know, the thing about that show is that the therapist is not, is not a bad therapist. Like I think he ha he sincerely cares for his clients he has some really deep insights, but they show him doing a lot of things that we as therapists are taught not to do. Mm. Um, and so he gets himself into a lot of messy situations. And um, so in a way it's an interesting show because it explores, you know, what happens um, when those boundaries are not held. Yeah. And um, yes, it's definitely inaccurate because for for a therapist to um, you know do some of the things that he's doing in the show, they would not be able to keep their license. Mm. Um, and I'm, I wasn't sure if you asked the next part of if you asked. Do you ask the whole question? So I should also give you the other. Yeah. Like which okay. one didn't do it well. Okay. So that one was the one that didn't do it well. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. So um, one that I think is actually doing a really good job is couples therapy, which I believe <gasps> is airing on Showtime, but yes, I'm able to watch show. it on Prime. Oh, great. Yes. So she's a real therapist. And so she's very professional and um, I actually, I think that she's quite talented. And, um, and then, I, you know, one of the things I really like about the show is that you get to see her in consultation and you get to mm -hmm. understand a little bit about her process and the process of the therapy, um, you know, the process behind the therapy. And so I, I really, I appreciate that. And I think that's, um, you know, kind of rare in portrayals of, of the process of psychotherapy on television. So yeah, definitely. I'm enjoying that. Um, <laughs> it also makes you feel like I remember as a 
On the other end, as someone who goes to therapy, I really appreciated seeing how she talked about her clients with her own therapist and mentor, um, where, you know, I don't know, I, I thought like, I didn't realize how much thought goes into looking at those situations and she would never judge or anything. Um, so I, I think that made me feel safer about therapy, actually, um, seeing how she approaches it. Oh, good. Yeah. That's great. Um, how did you feel about The Sopranos? And their portrayal. I honestly haven't watched more than a couple of episodes. And so I can't really speak to it. I, I mean, I think it's it's interesting that, you know, he does go to therapy and that that's part of the show. But that's as much as I can say. Okay. <laughs> I've always wondered, like, <laughs> what do real therapists think about this? Um, and then last question, a psychological concept that made a light bulb go off for you and forever change your life. I think that would have to be Dan Siegel's window of tolerance, mm. um, which is basically a very simplified map of our nervous system's response to stress and more specifically traumatic stress. And so what it does is it helps us to kind of conceptualize um, our how our nervous system's level of activation correlates with our brain function. Mm. And it sounds complex, but it's actually so very simple. And that's what I love about the model because it has helped me so much and it helps my clients so much to understand that when your sympathetic nervous system is overstimulated and you go into either hyper arousal or hypo arousal, you're just not going to be able to problem solve with the cognitive mind. And, you know, I mean, to a certain extent in terms of, like survival level decisions, yes, you will. But in terms of the deeper um, kinds of problems that we need to solve, like how to communicate with someone that we love about a conflict or, you know, how to get our needs better met at work, those kinds of thought processes are not available to us Mm. when our nervous system is experiencing a really high level of stress or a stressor that triggers a previous traumatic experience. And so when we know that, and then we learn to track the signs of hyperarousal or hypoarousal, we then are able to um, focus on bringing our nervous system back to a state where we can access our higher brain functioning to, you know, at a more effective level. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it actually simplifies a lot of things, you know, when, because I think so much of our, our suffering, um, you know, in relationship comes from trying to fix something at a level where we're not going to be very effective. Mm, Definitely. That is fascinating. Thank you for sharing that because it also helps understand why sometimes people act the way they do. If you're on the receiving end of that response Mm -hmm. and you're like, why couldn't they just blank? Yeah. Um, But if someone's going through all of that, probably can't 
meet you in that space a way maybe that you might, if you weren't, you know, uh, elite, like those high levels of stress weren't around and um, limiting that function. So yeah, that's exactly, insightful. exactly. Thank and you. I, <laughs> I love that you're also bringing it to compassion because I think, you know, if there's any one single thing that I could leave people with in terms of, you know, how to take care of your own mental health and that of others that you care about is to just find that compassion. Um, you know, this is so much of what therapy is about. Like, yes, there is some um, need to develop insight and cognitive understanding, but a lot of it is the emotional part of, mm-hmm. um, you know, developing the capacity to befriend oneself. Um, to be kind and compassionate. Yes. You know what? Honestly, you've left it at such a beautiful note. So I'll limit my words here. Um, But I just wanted to say thank you so much, Nirali. This has been incredibly wise, profound, insightful, helpful, all the positive adjectives of, I just feel like I learned so much and I'm sure people who listen will take least something away from this. So thank you for spending the time and opening your heart and mind to sharing all of this with Down to Brown. Thank you so much for having me, Lahari. It was really my pleasure. 